0: This is Power Athlete Athlete Radio.
1: With your hosts, Denny K, Professor Booty, and V. Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs.
2: Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. When it comes to setting goals in the world of strength and conditioning, anyone who trains will tell you there's no secret to achieving them. It's a matter of putting in the hard work. As you'll hear in this week's episode, our guest speakers at the Power Athlete Symposium lend their expertise on how to optimize your time and energy in order to achieve more. No subject matter could be more appropriate as we head into a brand new year. Andy Stumpf explains how in life, every person really has two choices – there's discipline and then there's regret. No worthwhile goal is ever met without sacrifice and persistence. Dr. Tom Inklodon, Rob Wolf, and John join Andy Stump in shaping a successful mental, physical, and physiological approach to training in this epic mashup. I know you're hungover. We're all hungover, but it's time to get vertical and start 2016 with Power Athlete Radio. This is episode 136.
0: So to give you guys a little bit of reference about what I'm talking about, the mental toughness, and my goal at the end of this would be to give you guys some coaching techniques that so you guys can take back to your gyms and draw some stuff out of your clients. Because you know, talking about mental toughness is one thing. I don't think anybody has a very good uh, definition for it because again, it's harder to talk about the stuff between the years than it is like, oh, you added five pounds to your deadlift today. You're doing really well. You need to be building people mentally and emotionally at that same time period. And like I said, my whole goal is to give you guys some tools to do that. So to do that, though, we have to talk about goals. And the goals, the ones that I have the most experience with come from the military side of the house. Uh, SEAL training, right? You guys have heard of BUDS before, basic underwater demolition, SEAL training. So the first day of BUDS, in, uh, in my BUDS class, we sat down, we had 180 guys. And instructors, and this is one of the awesome things about SEAL training, is it stayed relatively the same throughout its inception because it's a very well refined selection process. The first evolution they did for us is they put us in 18 rows of 10 chairs. And they said, look to your left, look to your right. Statistically, one of you is going to be here on graduation day. And then they said, okay, who here wants to be a SEAL? How many hands do you think went up? 180 hands. And then they said, oh, how much do you guys want to be a SEAL? How many of you guys have wanted to be a SEAL for your entire life? How many hands do you think went up? Like the vast majority, except for one or two. I wanted to be a SEAL since I was 11 years old. Uh, and I don't know why. I don't have the vocabulary to articulate it. And people think that that's really odd to hear. Somebody had that kind of drive at that age for a goal that they didn't understand. But it's a super common narrative inside of the SEAL teams. So they say, look left, look right. You know, this is day one. So if bud, it's six months, and you got day 182. The story arc of you know, and you don't get your trident at the end of 182 days. That's the refinement. that's the introduction or the refinement process that says, Hey, you're now invited to continue working for like another 18 months, and if you're lucky at the end of that, you're still going to get your trident. So, this is pure selection, but again, in the context of having a goal. So, day 182, there's 18 of standing there, 10%, which is the statistical average for buds, but. We all had the same goal. How many of you guys have clients who fall short of their goals? Like the vast majority, right? Why? I can tell you right now that for most guys, and I went back as an instructor and I got to watch the training, it's not, it's not a matter of physical differences. Like every one of you in this room, it is, it's 100% mindset. Every one of you in this room could go through any one day of BUDS, I guarantee you that, the women included. It's not a matter that one person wants it more than the other one or you know, it's a it matter of dedication. It really comes down to in between the ears. And that's super hard to articulate. And I didn't really understand why that was happening until I went back and I got to talk to uh, the students as an instructor. I was really, really, really good at getting people to quit. It was awesome. I love crushing people's dreams, right? And they're sitting there with snot bubbles. I'm like, <laughs> I've been at this my whole life. It's fucking awesome. See ya, right? So what comes down to it though? Like, again, in BUDS, this is what they focus on. We're going to run you to death. We're going to swim you to death. We're going to do push-ups and sit-ups, all that stuff. And they don't talk about the mental aspect. And just like all your clients, I mean, again, so 10% of the guys actually achieve this portion of their goal. How many? What percentage of guys do you think would actually add three hundred pounds to a deadlift? John, what percentage of guys playing pro football, or what percentage of people who want to play pro football, do you think make it? One. Less point zero. Fill in the blank. In
3: the last twenty years, fifteen mean, thousand guys played football. Yeah. Uh, less than that was than two years. So and and what do you think? Last... How
0: many people played Pop Warner? You know what I mean? And like in and all the other feeder systems, I and mean, it's like it's got to be millions. Yeah, it's uh, like five million kids. Yeah. So, when I went back as an instructor, I would pull the kids aside, and I'd talk to them, like, well, "Like, what's going on? Like, it's, it's not your physical specimen. You're 100%, you know, like, in better shape than most people that I've ever seen. You're smart. You're articulate. You're driven. What is it that is making you give up? And what I found is that, you know, people like to call it mental toughness, but you need to go, you need to have a definition beyond just what mental toughness is. Well, what do you guys, in your experience, how would you describe mental toughness? If so somebody came up to you and you're like, hey, what is it? You're staring at me, so I'm going to call on you.
1: Attitude.
0: Give me more. The ability to suffer. The ability to suffer. I like where your head's at. Give me more, though.
1: Balls. Balls? <laughs>
0: that only works for half the population.
1: I would say kind of understanding why you want to just having some arbitrary goal, it's like, hey, okay, I want to put here in the debit I want to be a steal. Um, I think a lot of people just come up with some bullshit goal, um, don't really, at least that's what I do, I try to get into like why,
2: and like why that person actually wants that, and if there's a real reason behind it, that's probably your 10%, but a lot of them, it's just some bullshit goal that, yeah,
1: yeah. it's cool, that, good. It's good
0: you guys see that everybody has a different answer? And, it, and its I'm not gonna say there's a right or a wrong answer, but I'm, what I'm gonna give you guys, I was surrounded, I got really lucky. And I got surrounded for the majority of my adult life by people who do amazing things like all the time. Uh, so for one, don't think that there's like some special sauce to being a SEAL. I've seen SEALs quit plenty of times. Everybody has their breaking point, so we can start from there, right? Mm-hmm. How do you push your breaking point farther along? The mental toughness thing to me is very quantifiable and all has to do with how you approach your goals between your ears, to me, mental toughness is about discipline. Okay, it's about how you approach the goals. You know, uh, there's a saying in the SEAL teams, right? Everybody wants to be a frogman on Friday because on Friday it's the end of the week. You're probably well-fed. You're excited about the weekend. You know, everything is falling into your favor, right? So it's easy to feel like you can achieve these massive goals when you are feeling great, right? But well, let's go to the other side of the coin, where you're feeling like shit, and you're tired, and you're not well-fed, uh, and you didn't get as much sleep as you wanted to get. What happens to goals then? Less important. Say again? Less
1: important.
0: They're less important, and what are you more likely to do? You're more likely to quit, and that's what I found when I started talking to the BUD students. It's about how they mentally approach the goal. The biggest key to success that I found, or the, actually I should say the biggest failure or mechanism that I saw is that people would say this, like, okay, I want to be a SEAL. And they would focus only on like, everything that they had to do up to becoming a SEAL. So like, let's take it for example for Buds. They would focus on the fact that they had to train for 182 days. Okay, the fifth week of training, like way back here, It's Hell Week. It's a pretty fun week. It's casual on the beach, right? Just sunning yourself. (laughs) 80% of the guys quit in Hell Week. Of that, 90% of them quit before Tuesday. And so every instructor at BUDS has to go and you have to work Hell Week. And the first thing you do is you start off by observing one so you can kind of learn the rules. Uh, And then you go back and you can start implementing the training. BUDS is very interesting from a student's perspective. It's chaotic. You'd go and be like, one day you're mad at me, and the next day, you know, you're happy, you're mad. Uh, One day something is good enough, and the next day it's not. You're like, what the fuck? What the fuck do they want from me? It's chaotic, and people are just spinning off into orbit. You go back as an instructor, and it's like, okay, what day of training are we going to do? Okay, cool. Go pull the three-wing binder out. Every day is completely templated out. And be like, hey, you're going to be the angry guy today? You're going to be the happy person. These number of people aren't going to be able to do things right. And you're like, you gotta be, you got to be shitting me. Like there's nothing random that happens in BUDS. And it all happens for a reason. Because we're selecting for people in BUDS that will largely never give up, right? Because of how they approach a problem. So I started watching people in Hell Week. And I started talking to the guys. The first ones to quit. And they're, like, they're a little bit cold, right? And you'd be amazed. Usually the first quitter in Hell Week goes... Ninety minutes into it? And this is a guy who said that their life life's goal was to be a seal. And usually the first person that goes, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people, right? We play awesome games with guys and buds. Like, you've been laying in the surf for 30 minutes, and while you're out there singing very jolly songs, I as an instructor am setting up a lovely table full of donuts and steaming hot chocolate. Right? And we'll get you in your linked arms and you stand up and you turn around and you come in and you'll stand right in front of the table. And be like, hey, you guys look cold. I have a jacket on right and like a steaming cup of coffee like I'm not cold but fuck you guys look cold who wants a donut anybody want some hot chocolate here's the deal we need one person to quit and we'll stop this evolution and we can all sit down and have donuts and somebody will quit and they're like mmm that was too fast I need somebody else (laughs) and somebody will quit and they're like you know what one more, just one more, and people will quit, and then we don't give them the donuts, and we'll eat them as the instructor's staff. <laughs> <laughs> then we continue with nausea for six months. But why did those people quit? So I'd pull these kids aside, right, talking about mental toughness and discipline. I'd pull these kids aside, and I'd talk to them, be like, dude, why did you give up? You said you wanted to be a SEAL. Every one of these guys fills out a buy-off like why they want to do this. And the number one response that I would get for people who failed to achieve their goal Right, because they're focusing on this. They want to become a seal. They're like, dude, I can't be cold for another 170 days. I can't be this tired for the rest of this six months. I cannot be this fill-in-the-blank for this extended period of time. It's not. And again, for these guys, I'm telling you, these were collegiate athletes, guys who couldn't make it in the NFL. Right? They they realized they didn't want to fight imaginary battles with tape on their hands, so they wanted to come and fight real battles. So they're like, fuck, fuck this play stuff with helmets on, they're made out of plastic, we're gonna put on carbon fiber, you know, ballistic material. It was all in how they approached it. So what my, my goal, what I'm trying to say is there's no difference in physical ability. It's how they approach their goal. Mental toughness to me has a formula. When they chose to focus on something that was so far away and they focused on the enormity of what they were trying to accomplish, it sets you up for failure. It's a great way to think about it on a Friday when it's sunny and you're full and you can control your training, right? But then it comes down to willpower, which is not a renewable resource. You have a limited amount, so you've got to be careful with how you apply it. It's easy to make the right decision when things are going great. It's really fucking hard to make the right decision when things are not going good. So the strategy that I found worked for most people was one of two things even in BUDS in general, because I was was, was interviewing a class, because all this stuff, mental toughness comes down again to goals and how you get to the goal. Guys who have the most success, they don't look at it as 182 days. They don't look at it as six months. They look at it as 26 weeks. What they do is they wake up on a Monday and they go fuck this. My goal is to see the sunset on Friday. And they do. And then they get the weekend off, because we're not crazy, right?
2: <laughs> and they come back on Monday,
0: and they do it again. And they do that 26 times. And at the end of that, they graduated buds. Now, you can apply that same theory towards Hell Week. You could look at Hell Week as... If we're, does anybody here know... Much about how late you guys all seen the Discovery Channel and the documentary, Navy SEALs. G.I. James is also a documentary, by the way. <laughs> right, so it starts on a Friday, or a Sunday, ends on a Friday. You get two hours of sleep on Wednesday. It's pretty fun. Pretty good time. A couple strategies that I've seen people work on that. They want to see the sun go down, and then what do you think they focus on? Sun coming up. I've seen that strategy fail more times than not. The number one strategy I've seen fail is, I'm gonna make it till Friday. (laughs) Doesn't work because they're looking at their goal in steps that they can't achieve, right? It's it's too much for them. So even looking at it a day at a time, pretty high likelihood of, uh, of failure. The way I got through is I focused on every six hours because they feed us every six hours. So all I would worry about is trying to make it to the point Where I would stuff food into my face. And by doing that, you know, stuff food in my face four times, I'm like, oh shit, the sun just came up. Stuff food in my face four times, the sun just came up. Pretty sure they let us sleep on Wednesday. I was hallucinating by Tuesday, so not quite positive what came after that, but it's how you approach the goal. Now, the life is a seal after you get out of this. You know, you're not even a seal when you get done. So six months in, you're in good shape and wildly dangerous, with no knowledge about what it takes to be a SEAL. And you got to layer on top of that 18 months. Then you get a pin that you wear on a uniform that says you're a SEAL, you still don't know shit. And then for five years, you train for 18 more months, and you deploy for six. And people start thinking about all this stuff in here, and start failing along the way. So you got to think about this in perspective of your client. You get a dude who comes in and is 200 pounds overweight, right? Who hasn't had that scenario? And what do you do? You say, get the fuck out of here. Go to a different gym, right? That's what I would do. I don't know how to deal with, I don't, I don't deal with slugs. Lay off the pizza. Walk. You know? Don't laugh. That's how. Ask John. That's how I used to approach my clients. When I was there, he saw it, that's too. True. The things I've gotten away with, if you just say it with conviction, people are like, fuck, That has to be great. <laughs> <laughs> stuff, but I'm talking about it like it's real. I, you guys are like, oh shit, this is revelatory. It's made to shit up. <laughs> so, what I'm talking about is the power of really small steps. Okay. And Actually, I just got back from Singapore uh, and I was talking to some American schools over there, and I was talking to kids who were everywhere between 4th grade to 8th grade. And I find, actually, if you would talk to grown-ass adults at, at the same you know, verbiage and vernacular that you use for children, you actually get better results. Because uh, most adults are not as smart as they think, right, my point is is that by approaching a goal in that manner, or when you go and you're talking to somebody who comes to you, you have to explain to them how to set a goal and then everything that's going to go along the way to achieve it and the best thing that I've ever been able to use is the domino theory. you guys ever heard of this? all right, so kinetic energy the the energy that something has you know to impart energy on another object you guys not to insult anybody's intelligence, all know what a domino is, right? I mean, we're not, we're not all from watts, right? So we're not playing it over our 40s, but you guys all know what a domino is, right? Okay, if you stack a domino up and knock it over, the cool thing about a domino is that it has the kinetic energy to move something one and a half times its size. So a domino, for ease of math, I think is about two inches tall. So what can the next domino be?
1: Three.
0: Did you just say four? I did did. Redo Carry the one Three All right So here's a trick question What's the next domino? (laughs) Yeah, Four and a half I'm going to help you out Okay Point is is that every domino along the way Can move something that's one and a half times its original size Okay Which is going to It's an important analogy when you're talking to your clients The 17th domino Is the size of the Eiffel Tower The 32nd domino is 3,000 feet taller than Mount Everest. It's the power of really small things over a timeline that gives you something great, right? And the only way to make those decisions is through discipline. That's why I say mental toughness is directly tied to discipline, right? But you're only gonna have a limited amount of discipline because nobody's perfect, Like I wish Rob was here because one of my favorite uh, analogies that he used to make at the seminars you know, if you talk about diet and be like, listen, if you really want to have results and you want to be on a diet or an eating strategy, you gotta get the shit food out of your house. Why?
2: Because Volcaro sucks, right? <clears throat> it's it's not a
0: renewable resource. You only have a finite amount of it. So the discipline required to get to hear that this is all that you're focusing on is insane. But the discipline required, you know, if you come in and you make this a part of how you educate your clients, like, hey, this is what I want you to focus on and this is why. Because you can take, each one of these could just be an hour-long class, right? But, you know, this comes down to all the way to coaching strategies that you guys use to get people through workouts. like 21-15-9, you know. Say what? Just Just give me one. Or what I personally tell myself is I can always do one more. I can always do one more. And if you guys aren't talking to your clients about the mental game, like if it's 21 15, 9 deadlift at 225 and handstand push-up, talk to your clients about the mental game that they're going to encounter in each and every one of those rep schemes. Break it up for them. Set goals for them, small goals inside of them, so they can achieve something greater. Does that make sense to you guys? That's where you guys are going to get the sweet spot from your clients because you can only push people so far. Like the biggest mistake I think you guys can make as a coach is wanting more for someone than they want for themselves. That's like, I'd rather spin a pistol and just stuff it in my mouth and pull the trigger, right? Can't stand it. But it's about the discipline. And here's the deal. You know, I was talking to John about this earlier today. His goal to play in the NFL started when he was 14 years old. My goal to be a SEAL started when I was 11. And everywhere along the way, I had dominoes lined up that I could either make the right decision and get myself closer, or I could move one of those dominoes out of the way and I'm not going to say it would start you back at zero, but it probably would delay the fall and make it that much harder. Okay, You guys need to grasp your head around a pretty simple concept, that you really only get two choices in life. Okay, You have discipline, right? which sucks, because it means when you don't want to do something but you need to, you do it. When you're tired, it doesn't fucking matter. You get off your ass and you do the work, or you have regret. Right? If you want to go do something amazing, whether it play in the NFL... Or be a SEAL or compete in a completely bullshit, antiquated exercise competition. (laughs) You know, how, whatever it is you want to do or however it is you want to get there, anything you want to do in your life, right? You have the the pain of discipline or you have the pain at the end of your life looking back regretting the fact that you never got there. That's what mental toughness is. It's a day-to-day struggle to do the right thing when you don't want to do it. Does that resonate with you guys? It
1: sounds like it's stress-induced, when you fragment that goal or that timeline, the higher the stress, the shorter the window you have to, or the shorter step or smaller. You can stress
0: yourself out even more if you shorten the timeline. You can go harder. There's a reason you can't run your 100-meter pace for 800 meters. You know what I mean? If you shorten this stuff up, you can go harder, and then you can take a step back, right? Because this this can't be your trajectory. It's got to be super low. That's the only way it's going to be sustainable. But again, either one of those things, it's all driven between your ears. And it's really easy to write out a linear barbell template, but it's really fucking hard to draw out of people as a coach the motivation that probably somewhere inside of them. And if it's not, what should you do? Somebody say it fire them. So, to me, the single most important uh, criteria that a leader has to have is integrity. And in the SEAL teams, like John was talking about, like there's a the list of core competencies that we're responsible for. But from day one in training, it comes back to three things, right? Shoot, move, and communicate. Those are the three basics that we always harp on. And our leaders, you know, the SEAL officers, SEAL training is unique that both enlisted and officer go through exactly the same training. Uh, and there's largely no demarcation for rank, you know. They, they have to do a little bit more in the, in the perspective of responsibility in training, but they have to do the same things and they have to perform at the same standards. And you see it, the second one of the leaders doesn't live up to the standard that they're espousing, they're done. You guys have all seen this, right? A teacher, like, you know, there's, there's a reason you don't take financial advice from a homeless dude on the street corner, right? <laughs> Regardless if he has a fucking degree from Harvard in business. If you're homeless, I don't I don't take your advice. You need to be living the foundation that you're espousing to other people. So you get to become a SEAL. Like, the life of a SEAL, people are like, whew, I've been through the training and I'm done. Yeah, I've been in the military for two years and I'm a SEAL and it's like... Phew. Yep, I got it. Nope, not, not at all. Like, it's a constant reassessment of your skill level and constantly trying to raise the bar. I never got to a point in my career where I was like, yep, I got, it. I got it dialed. I got it nailed. I could always shoot better. I could always know my gear better. I could always just fill in the blank everything that we used to do. And if you guys aren't feeling that way as a coach, if you guys feel comfortable in your station in life, you're know, like, I got this coaching thing figured out, I need to find a new job. It's the same thing as being a SEAL. If you get comfortable and you're like, okay, I got this. I'm the best shooter in the world. I'm the best leader, fill in the blank. You need to stop and you need to find a different job because you're completely irrelevant. Your headspace is now in the, in, in the wrong space. It's a never ending cycle. In the SEAL teams, it's task, execute, debrief, task, execute, debrief, task, execute, debrief. It's a circle that never stops. And if you do stop that, you need to leave the community and you're probably gonna get forced to leave the community. Does that make sense to you guys? It never ends, ever.
3: And actually, the great athlete is a symbiotic relationship between body, mind, and soul. You know, your ability to compete at the highest level, the the ability to take your body and use it as your tool to apply to your sport. You know, and the uh, you know the mental preparation to understand the skill. I mean, all your timing, preparation, all this good stuff. And then it takes competition and another great athlete. Pushing you for you to display yourself, you know, to all of a sudden take this holistic approach to prove that you're a great athlete. You know, when you watch like that, that catch right up there, going down Beckham Jr., which I think they voted one of the greatest plays ever in the NFL. So the guy's going back, he throws. Literally, the dude jumps over his shoulder, catches his ball in one hand, and pulls it in for a touchdown. The place erupted. Just about you know, look the greatest player I've ever seen, most incredible athlete. You know, they're giving him all these accolades. Um, do you know what he works on before every game? That, <laughs> that exact play? Forever. Since he was in high school, he's been working on that play. So here's a guy that has prepped for this moment his entire life. And all of a sudden, they put him in the position, the perfect position, and what does he have to do? That's what whatever he has to do. So then what happens the next week? They show J.J. Watt pre practice pre-game, out there, and what's he doing? Working the fucking Odell back Beckham Jr. And why? He's a defensive lineman. He plays in the goal line. They, they send him out on a catch. Is he ever going to be in that position? Who knows, but he's going to prep for him. So now you have a situation where an incredible athlete, probably one of the best players that I've ever game, is now looking at another guy and going, like, fuck it, I want to do this too. So, I mean, it, it's a pretty exciting deal, but um, this question of what is athleticism was really just this kind of burning deal in my head. And... Uh, the acute was great because it forced me to put this presentation together, and it forced me to come out and really talk about it and uh, get some feedback. So we'll go down the journey. So just like every good scientist, just like every good individual, we start with a definition. Because from a definition, I can start working backwards and start proving my definition, my hypothesis. And this is the power athlete. Uh, John Lovall, Luke Summers, Tex. Uh, last seven years and life of training, this is the definition of athleticism. The ability to seamlessly and effortlessly combine primal movement patterns through space to accomplish a known and novel task. Primals. So you saw that word in there, primals. We talked about primal movement patterns. Now, you guys know what a primal movement pattern is because you've been the CrossFit football seminar. You've seen the program primals. We've talked about primals. And we've butchered the word primals and beat it down. But yet, when most people hear the word primals, what are they worth thinking of? caveman. Okay, a dude one clock with a spear running through the wilderness. What what's primal mean? Mark Sisson and his whole primal thing has fucked it all up. But really, what is the word primal mean? Like your base level. Level. Yeah, it's your base, base level, level. <coughs> it's your most base level, your most stripped down, you know, your primal urge. You know, Dr. Tom had three drinks and he went primal. <laughs> he he reverted to him. his most basic being. You know, you hear about people being like, you know, things just got primal. I had a primal scream, a primal urge. It was devoid of emotion, it was devoid of thought, there was nothing, I'm sorry, There was devoid of thought. There was nothing but raw, untapped emotion, the most basic time. I imagine, you know, early man three million years ago in Africa, you have Andy and Artie running through the things. Those individuals were primal. That was our most basic deal. So, unfortunately, if you use the word primal, people get a little confused. But what it really means is essential, fundamental, basic. And what's always nice is I get up here and speak with you guys. You guys have already heard this. So when I did the cube summit, most of the people that were there had never heard any of this information and all of a sudden they're like primal movement patterns. But really what we did with the primal movement patterns is we really looked at it by separating the upper body from the lower body. And this was significant because the world's best athletes, the greatest show of athleticism is individuals that can separate their upper body from the lower body. So think about this, you're watching a guy in the NFL and I use the football because it's the easy reference for me. But a guy's sprinting down the line as fast as he can, full speed, you know, Odell Beckham Jr. What does he do as he's running? All of a sudden, the ball's thrown. He doesn't miss a stride as he rotates on that axis, reaches over his body, catches the ball, pulls it back down and comes here. Where you watch a guy running straight, that ability to come here and move his body. So um, that was another prerequisite of athleticism in great athletes is that ability to separate their upper body from the lower body. It became something that was so... I guess you could say, like, the difference between the good and the great, especially in offensive line play. So if I'm in a position here and I set back, set back in a defensive alignment, and my ability to move my upper body in, uh, you know, all around this kind of axis, with keeping my lower body in one position without tying them together mm-hmm. it became the difference between the guy who might be a backup and probably not gets play or the guy that starts on Sunday and makes the all decade team. So um, when we went back and looked at all these different sports, whether it be rugby, whether it be the quarterback stepping through and realizing I have to go all these different deals, that separation, that horizontal plane and that rotating, that ability became so fundamental. And the idea of separating primary movement patterns from the upper and lower became more just a function of the different joints. And when we looked at it, you guys are obviously familiar with the lower body, which is the X, Y, and Z axis, which our x-axis, which is our most basic, we call this our keystone, or really our uh, fundamental. And what it is, is it's called the hinging, if we were to look at it, in terms of biomechanics, it's called the hinge, which is spinning on that x-axis, which means if I were to drive a steel spike through here, like I'd line myself on that grid, and I would rotate on that x-axis, that is called hinging. This is the most basic movement and really the beginning of everything that we teach. So those of you guys that have kids, what do kids learn to do? How do they push themselves up in a position to walk? They go from a crawl, they push themselves into a squat, and then they stand up. And then they take a step. You watch every sport, and what does it usually start with? What do we call this position? Athletic position. The universal athletic position. Why is it called the universal offensive position? Because everybody uses it. It's universal through all sports. It doesn't matter what it is. Every sport starts like that. Court's quarterback starts in what? This position. All of his linemen start. The running back starts here. The defensive alignment. you can go through and show 22 positions. The only one might be a DB who's in this position to stagger because his first step is here. Even offensive linemen start, is still stagger. But what are they still doing? They're still you. So this hinge is, you know, I hate to use the word primal again because it is a primal movement panel, but it's like, I guess you could call it what, the, uh, the most primal? <laughs> <laughs> Just a joke. But so look at, so look at our good friend here the Linebacker. He's setting up his universal goes off in position, but what do you notice about his position? Is in a front? Okay. for what position would we most know that as? A triangle. When you guys are at the CrossFit Football Seminar, where do we start? A triangle. We put up the what is the CrossFit Football, how to design athleticism, how do we design the athlete, the power athlete. That triangle sits here, and that triangle is selected because why? What is a triangle? The most stable structure on the planet. The oldest surviving structures on this earth or what? Periods. Huh? And why is that? A big, strong, wide base pyramid up to the top and just like anything you start seeing these positions so now we have a universal athletic position when we talk about knees on the insteps right everything's here we're not in this position like that you know the god-awful drive your knees out kelly's stride red squat where your knees are outside your feet which is an athletic position because this is not this is a circle out here which is our triangle so we have our universal athletic position our base triangle our bilateral hip hinge you can see Kurt Kowalski here his feet are a little narrow, but how he's cheating and really is his feet out and his knees are so directly over. And that is, those of you guys that are powerlifting and like watching stuff, uh, Kirk Kowalski to me is probably the best powerlifter ever in the grace of this earth. Probably the strongest dude ever. I mean, you watch him squat. I don't know anybody's ever seen Captain Kirk squat that didn't think, fuck, how did that dude do that? So if you guys want to go back and watch. And I found this great picture of this little girl trying to jump up on a box. She's got to be four or five years old. Look at her position. Right, where are knees? These are on main steps. Nobody told her anything. Nobody coached her doing. It. She just jumped up on that box. I watch with other girls. What do they do? They squat to play, and how do they sit? Knees slightly in. Right, their feet are wide enough. You guys remember the big CrossFit debate where they the brought Kelly on and they were arguing with toes out, or knees out, toes forward, the whole deal. Um, that whole thing was complete bullshit, and the reason being is. If everybody squatted a little bit wider, you can still drive their knees out and have the knees still on the instep. The problem is, everybody in crossfit, and most people squat way too narrow. So you watch these guys, and Kelly wants everybody to drive their knees out, which is fine. The knees out is a great cue. But if your feet are so narrow that you drive your feet out to where you bow leg yourself and all of a sudden you start to have to roll, or you're jamming and driving your, your knee out past that line of your foot, it's a bad movement. So what do you do? You can still drive your knees out. You can still torque and create that internal hip torque. You just have to widen your feet so that your knees come on your insteps and create more A-frame, which is the, in football and most sports, is that universal athletic position. This is not a universal athletic position. This is an old guy who just got off a horse. So what's tough for me is I hear these things, I see these things, and to me it sounds crazy. And I'm like, the rest of the world thinks it's crazy. But then we talked about this stuff, and most people don't know these things because either they haven't paid attention or they just haven't looked at it. It's on granular levels we have it. Because I you know, haven't had to sit with drinks, with Tex and I had them fucking argue about this stuff to the nth degree. But really, this x-axis becomes the basis of everything. It's the, you know, it's the starting place. If somebody can't master the x-axis, then what are you going to do? You have to keep working on it. You know, I mean people like, oh, I can't squat. What should I do? Should I launch? Well, yeah, you should launch. But I need you to work to master. Now, is it that people cannot master the x-axis? No, no. everybody really can do it if you know how to teach it. But what do we see? We see people t- teach it terribly. Right? They don't understand hip position. They don't, you know, and they, the hip flick and all these different things. I mean, we see the butt wink. That's my other favorite one. You know how you get rid of the butt wink? Squeeze them walnut. squeeze Or put weight on their back. If the weight gets heavy enough, the butt wink always goes away. The butt wink is very apparent when you're squatting to a, a, a medicine ball. Air squat. I mean, we've had people butt wink. I'm like, let's just keep putting weight on their back. And all of a sudden, it gets heavy enough to where they can't butt wink. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. So I think a lot of these things are, are just made up. And it's just, it's one of those deals. And I've heard CrossFit argue about it. And I'm like, well, I mean, if you're talking about 95-pound thrusters, fuck yeah. Just keep waiting on it until it just goes away. And like, they were like, oh, that's still irresponsible. I'm like, fuck. What's more irresponsible having somebody do thousands of reps of a bad movement pattern? <laughs> you know, which is reinforcing. So this bilateral hip hinge is that basic of that primal movement pattern and really the foundation of athleticism as a starting position. Now we get into the y-axis, which is that, that lunge step, which if you think about it's the second portion of this. So here's my linebacker, my first guy here. What does he do? He takes a step. Now he's in his y-axis, which is our lunge. And this is that idea of stepping through. Now we have our football player here, obviously, on his second step. He's lunging on that horizontal plane, stepping through. we got a little bodybuilding body, which I actually thought was a good position, because what's he doing? Look at his foot. He's coming into his body, which is different than we see most people who do what? Step open, and why do we know that's not beneficial? So the last thing you want to do is basically torque your foot out this way with your knee going in, ACL tears, MCL tears more problems. So once again, we're taking small little pieces of movement and then looking at them in terms of, I need you to put your foot here because all of a sudden, once we add speed to this, if your foot's out, we're going to have more problems. Uh, Amanda, who was here last year, um, she, is, uh, she ended up tearing up her knee pretty bad at a, at a practice. And when I went back with her and recreated it, she, could, she went to take a ball, put her foot this way, decided to come back this way, and her knee buckled in. You know? And her thing was like, man, I tried to make a split decision at the last moment. And she's an incredible, very, very athletic, probably one of the most athletic people I've ever seen uh, do some stuff. I mean, she's a pleasure to watch. But here's the deal, even a great athlete hurts themselves because of a miscue of communication. If she put her foot in the ground and then decided to go back, she would have been fine. Her foot was too open to go here, and she comes back and tears her knee. And she'll probably end up having surgery from a torn lateral medial meniscus. So, but that's as easy. I mean, there's a really gifted athlete playing on a wet surface, goes out, hadn't been playing. This was a trial for a new team. All of a sudden, yeah, And now she misses out and, and, you know, all of a sudden hurts herself for somebody that had never really been injured before. So, this stuff becomes so paramount. And we get to watch our little buddy here who is a kid just playing in nature running. Very easy to see. So, what I'm trying to show is that these things are applicable in sport, but we can also find these things in just random kids running through the park. And then our Z axis, which becomes even more important for that third step, obviously. So, think about it as universal athletic position, take a step, somebody comes at me. To hurl them or step over something, which happens in most sports. So you can see our, our guy stepping up. He's doing a great position. He's driving up. And really what differentiates the Y from the Z axis becomes that movement of the iliac crest. So obviously the iliac crest here, when it starts getting horizontal changes, is when we start going from the, from the Y and the Z axis. So you guys see our hurdlers. I'm trying to circle right here as he's coming over. And then, you guys have always seen the Luke uh, step-up video. And what was pretty interesting about that video was uh, those guys were actually doing step-ups. And they were doing it just as I walked out. And I realized um, I had never coached them how to do a step-up. And it was really bad. And I fucking yelled at them. I feel bad about it. Because I was yelling at them because I failed as a coach as their let's say athletic mentor through this process to provide them the tools that they needed to effectively learn to do a step-up. So, uh, Nate was doing them too, and what Nate was doing was he was starting a squat and he was like leaning this way and putting a foot up into a squat and then he was trying to like jump, stay in the squat, stay the other foot up, and then he stood up. And I was like, what the fuck is that? But he was able to do 225. I'm like, no, no, here's how we do step-ups. And this is why the step-up is important, and I got this from Rafael Ruiz. So, individual puts their foot up there nice and square. They have to not push off their back foot, but they lean on their front quad. They drive themselves up, bringing this into a good position here, driving the knee up, toe up. And then as they go put down, they keep the toe up as long as they can to try to control, kiss the heel, go and switch. And uh, we ended up filming that demo right there, and that was really the first time that they had ever done it. So what do they have to do? they stripped all the fucking weight off. But how hard is that? Nate's never gonna step up ever again. Yeah, so, he yeah, no, never has, and he never will. Because some people really wrestle with this thing called ego. Ego can be a very, very good thing. Ego can also be the most dangerous of things. Because what it does is if your ego is so big that you can't learn, then it prevents you from going to places that you need to to improve. So how do you balance that? especially as coaches. Because that is probably, and I, I wish Andy got into that a little bit more uh, yesterday, but how, how dangerous is ego in the gym? Yeah. yeah, what's more dangerous, the coach's ego or you're the athlete's ego? Coaches, coaches. Uh, yeah, how coach many guys team have designed a program? This looks awesome, let's try this. Mm-hmm. And they start working out. And it goes to dog shit. It looks bad, mm-hmm. what do you think? fuck, them, hell or high water, this is my program, they're going to execute it. And somebody gets hurt, and you're like, fucking great, you got to break some eggs to make it all, and get the fuck out of here. That was an attitude of a lot of people. Early, there's a lot of strength coaches, like that. a lot of people I played with. Um, I played for an offensive line coach, a guy named Tom Cable, who is revered now as the best offensive line coach in the NFL, uh, Seattle Seahawks. That was his attitude. Fuck you, this is my system, and you can't do it, you get hurt. you got to break some eggs, and so they got surgery for him. His ego was so big that he was right regardless of what you were doing. Now, you have athletes all the time, and I'm sure you guys run into it all the time, and these are the worst athletes where their ego is so big that they can't take weight off the bar. How dare you coach me? My Brother Ed, worst athlete in the world to coach. Because he doesn't believe he does anything wrong. And if you tell him he's doing something wrong, he will stop and berate you. He's a lawyer and likes to argue, and he will fucking berate you. Not because he really believes that what he's doing is right. It's just because he fights everybody. So a lot of coaches, I <laughs> coach my brother, like, <coughs> put him!" In, I'm like, don't coach him, let him hurt himself. I fucking hope he hurts himself every time he works out. <laughs> right? So, as a, you know, but thank God he doesn't pay, he's my brother. But um, that type of deal is so dangerous with ego. And, uh, you know, great people in and teaching them these foundational fundamental movements becomes the basis of all program where you almost have to sell up, being like, here's the deal. We're going to learn these things. And really what this is, is, and you guys have heard Texas uh, three Ps, and we've done such a great job on our coaching responsibility. But what do we talk about? We talk about how do people learn and how do we teach within what's called the chunking model. And so I don't know if you guys know, I've probably told you guys this seven times and I forget. But um, I did my master's in my last, uh, last year at Berkeley. I played, I graduated, graduated four, did a master's in my fifth. And I was an education major, so I was a teacher. And I had visions of being. Uh, what I wanted to do was, when I graduated, I was going to go play in the NFL for a year. Because how long do people to play in the NFL? I don't know. I've never met anybody play anything longer in the NFL than a year. Um, all the guys that I knew played the NFL had only been in a year or two. So I was going to go for a year. I was going to make some dough. And I had a scholarship lined up to uh, go to uh, law school at Berkeley. So uh, they had a scholarship for four-year letterman uh, to go to Bull Hall, which is Berkeley's law school, that I applied for and actually received. And so I had this pitching law school scholarship all paid for. I was going to go make money for a year, come back, go to law school. And eventually I wanted to teach law and I wanted to be a college professor. And that was kind of what I thought about. I wanted to be a Berkeley law professor. And there was a guy named Adrian Cragen who was this old guy who was like my mentor. It was like in his 70s. He had practiced law with the old guy who mentored my father. And my dad has been a practicing attorney for 50 years, so my dad was an old attorney. This guy had mentored him, and uh, this guy was a friend of his. So they plugged me in, and I used to go talk to this old guy. He would help me, and, like, yeah, that's what he was. He was a law school professor, so that's all i right. And uh, um, so it's just kind of uh, interesting deal. So I'm in, you know, grad school to go be a teacher. And, you know, when you sit down and they start teaching, about how do you convey information to people is really what a teacher is. I have this information. I need to convey it to you. What's the best way. And what we really worked on was the chunking model, which is the idea of, You start with the letters, you teach somebody letters. Those letters become words, words become sentences, sentences become paragraphs, paragraphs become pages, pages become novels. And really, um, if you look at how conventional teaching works, it works a lot of that ways. You can also look at Montessori and other deals where they teach a bunch of different other ways. But for us, in terms of athletic development, that is the most efficient way. We don't teach complex movements. If you look at gymnastics, what do they teach? They teach basics, they teach foundations, they teach primal movements. Once you master primals, what do they do? They have more complexity. Same thing we do. We're teaching X, y, Z basic. Once those happen, then we start tying them together. And you guys have all done stuff with our sandbags. where we do our primal complexes, which is what? Tying X, Y, Z together in steps with weight. And um, I, I don't know if I ever told you guys this, uh, but I tell you the story about when uh, this guy at the seminar asked, raised his hand, and asked why we lift weights. No. you guys ever No. Okay. Um <coughs> it Teaching across CrossFit football seminar, and this is long before the guys, um, when Ralph and I used to go one of these things. And uh, this guy raised his hand, and he said, uh, why do we lift weights? I was like, okay, well, you know, um, overloading the central nervous system, building, you know, developing skeletal muscle structure, you know, uh, you know, I go through all of the physiology of lifting weights. And, uh, you know, and he's like, okay, you know, he goes through it. And so they later that night, we're driving in the car. And I'm like, always replaying the seminar. Um, I have this terrible deal before I go to bed. I try to replay today. And what happened, and this thing was like a splinter in my mind. Uh, why do we lift weights? Why do we lift weights? Why do we lift weights? And, I, and we went back to the seminar the next day, and people were training. And I was watching them. We were getting them in the setup. Everything was good. And um, as they went to school, different movements. all of a sudden, the movement started breaking down. And it didn't matter if he was running or whatever. I kept seeing the people start a good position and they couldn't maintain position. So we pulled some weight off, they could maintain position. Add a little bit more, they couldn't. And I realized the reason we lift weights is to challenge posture and position through full range of movement. Through full movement patterns. And we can use anything to challenge posture and position. We just have selected a barbell, which is a cylinder with these other really cool cylinders, perfectly weighted perfectly balances on our body, bench press, all these other things, we can use the barbell in any degree to challenge posture and position to, for prime movements, full range of motion. Now, does it have to be a barbell? No, it doesn't have to be a barbell. You can use a sandbag. You can use chains. You can use anything you want to challenge posture and position through full range of motion. So, effectively, what is lifting weights? Just external resistance to challenge functional moving movement whatever you want to do so there's more than one way can you still do these programs without weights yeah we can go weld up chains we can get shim 350 blocks we can put on weighted bed i mean we can do these things as any which way we need to it just so happens that a barbell is very very convenient Mm because why we can make small incremental jumps like on a linear progression it's easy to balance I can stand straight in the arm. I mean, it's just the most convenient thing that we've seen to do it. But it doesn't mean that it stops there. That's why we did sandbag stuff. Why did it fucking destroy people?
1: It's hard. It's hard.
3: Awkward. It forces you loaded. load it. What do I make you guys do? Put my shoulder, not on the back. Zurchers, different things. I try to play with the movements. Whenever we do stuff, and I got this from Ralph, I told you... Uh, it was Kim Roth's program. So he started unbuckling the, unscrewing the equipment from the ground. You get on the dip the thing was shaking, and Roth's like, What happened to the, to the bolts? He's like, Yeah, just cut back. they so had to get rid of those. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, it, it was it was that level of stuff which really showed me that there was always ways to add complexity to it, but we're always traveling through full range of motion, trying to maintain posture and position, regardless of what's out there, whether it be a sandbag or other things.
1: Um, during that time, I came back and I competed in a Strongman Contest, and I won every single event, set all kinds of world records. Uh, some of the highlights, I ran um, 80 feet with 275 pounds in each hand, about 10.4, 10.6 seconds. So I was falling ass. Um, I was never a good log presser when I started, I could only do like a 225 log, and one day I met uh, one of the guys training for a shot put, and that guy taught me how to do reverse band pressing. And once I learned that, so it's basically hooking the bands up above you and you can get it's like the weight would be like 180 here, but like 240 up here because the bands are pulling up. And as I started incorporating that in my training, my logs just took off. Uh, I wind up going from I couldn't even lift the opening weight to setting a world record in the log press. And I started realizing right, if I break this stuff down, I can figure out where my weak link is in any movement pattern and figure out a way to strengthen my body within that range of motion or that movement pattern to the point that I could literally compete with the best in the world. So I got all kinds of uh, stories like Magnus for Magnuson and Magnus Samuelson and Bill Kazmaier and Mark Henry and all these guys. So <clears throat> well, tangent. So I'm doing a seminar with Magnus for Magnuson. and if you don't know who Magnus is, he won the World Strongest Man four times. So he could legitimately claim to be one of the strongest people in history because there's very few human beings that can win World's Strongest Man twice, let alone four times. What's unique about Magnus, he won the World's Strongest Man without ever training the events. He literally showed up and just beat everybody. Think about the skill and the time it takes to develop <clears> a skill and get good at something. And now imagine you're training for years and this guy shows up and crushes you without ever practicing the event before. So we're doing a s- seminar, and uh, someone goes to Magnus, Hey, we always strong. And Magnus goes, uh, He's got a thick um, uh, Icelandic accent. And he's like, You know how in grade school there's that bully that picks on everyone? And everybody's like, Yeah. He goes, I was that bully. <laughs> <laughs> like, he said it very proudly. And then someone says, uh, How much do you curl? And he goes, 75. And they go, 75 pounds? It's like, pounds, kilos. So he's curling 165 pounds in each hand for reps easily. So there were some real mutants that I got a chance to hang out with and do some cool things with. Um, so for today, uh, what I hope you get out of this is just some exposure to what's out there. Um, every problem has a solution. It's just a matter of uh, we're going to dedicate the time to look for it. And uh, listening to some of the stuff that I've heard so far... You know, one of the things that I, I thought about is, um, you know, uh, if you look at your like schedule for the week, how many people actually plan time to think about their thinking? It's a, a phrase, but it essentially means, you know, you set up something, how, when do you plan time to look at it, reevaluate it from different perspectives or input from other professionals? When I look at the differences between guys that run a six-figure business, a seven-figure business, an eight-figure business, and so on, it's not like they get smarter. You know, Larry Page is not any smarter than anybody here. Um, when I meet these billionaires that come in because they want me to do all this crazy shit and get their blood, you know, at first I used to think, wow, these guys are going to be super smart because they're making billions of dollars a year. Not one of them ever impressed me intellectually. What I did find is, one, they surrounded themselves with really good talent. So people that they could, you know, basically delegate and pull things off. But two, they they had a way of creating time in their life where they could think about what they were doing and ways to improve it. And sometimes when people are caught up in, like, the operations of their environment, it's really hard to just think about how I make this better. Um, And I share that because that's a, a very simple difference between someone making uh, six figures, seven figures, and eight figures, is just the amount of time that they have to look at what they're doing and evaluate it objectively. So um, I got lots of John stories. I will try not to bore you with too many of them, but some of them are really good. And uh, one quick one I would have to share because John gave that jerky today. So when John was first coming out with the jerky, he's over at my office and he brings like this huge pack of jerky. He's like, hey, man, I got this new jerky. You got to try it. It's really good. And he goes over how it's made, you know, everything. So he has the jerky in his hand. And as I reach for it, he pulls it back like he's talking to me about how good the jerky is, and he's eating it. So as I reach for it again, he pulls it back. So I haven't had any jerky at this point. John's eating the jerky, and now I get called and I go into another room and I come back and there's no jerky left. John ate all the jerky that he brought to give me to try so I could sell it on my website. So, so my first experience with the jerky is there was no jerky. So anyway, I thought that was particularly important for everyone to know. All right, so. Uh, uh, so the, the, I guess um, what I'd like to do is, uh, there's not really a rhyme or a reason here. There's some really cool technologies. I wanted to make sure everybody got exposed to it. So first, um, this uh, technology here, company's called LifeLate. It's brand new. Um, you know, it, this is like so brand new, like this, this is like less than maybe two months old. It's uh, not, not been on the market very long. I was uh, one of the scientists that evaluated the initial prototype the initial prototype was like this big, bulky box, had a plug-in, and the first model they gave me, it literally fell apart. Like, the edges, the glue came undone, and it, and it crumpled. And so I, I called the company, spoke to the head engineer, I said, look, I have some concerns over your quality control, <laughs> because <laughs> devices should not just fall apart in your hands. And uh, they apologized and everything, and so they got me involved, you know, looking at their, their, their equipment. And so... Um, this particular device, it's designed so that when it's fully charged, it can be portable. The significance of it is that um, there's four different wavelengths, and it's put in a silicon um, type of material, so it's very flexible. You can bend it, roll it, so you can literally like put it around a joint. And you can control it from an app. You download an app, and uh, you connect it to. So there's a Wi-Fi emitter here, and it connects to Wi-Fi and your phone. And I'll just, uh, give me one second, I'll pull it up, and I'll show you. The reason why that's really cool is you could literally put this on you, like, in your car, in a plane, sitting at work. Like, you don't necessarily need to be plugged into anything. So now it's like, wow, you could take your rehab on the road with you. And uh, I've tested it with um, uh, elderly women with all kinds of uh, rheumatoid, rheumatoid and osteoarthritis in their hands. Um, they really enjoyed, uh, you know, the results. Like, so they basically they had so much arthritis they couldn't unscrew a cap on a bottle. They couldn't wash dishes. So those are things that, you know, maybe for many people in the room, that's not a big deal. But for someone in that situation, they can't basically function in life, right? They can't wash dishes. They can't do certain things. So it would uh, would be very impairing for them. One second here. So once you download the app, you basically connect it to, and then you should be able just to, uh, if I got it still connected, there you go. So the lights now, so you can turn it on from your phone. So the significance of this is uh, in my facility, I could be on the inside of the building. I could see, oh, five minutes to go. Okay, it's done, it gives me a status. So I could literally control this from anywhere else in the building. So I don't have to be directly on someone. So we combine a lot of different therapies for our patients in our clinic. So if I was doing, let's say an IV, while someone is exercising, and I decide I need to put some light on them, I don't have to be right there. I can have one of my assistants monitor that situation while I'm on the other side of the building, maybe dealing with a more complicated case. Um, So this is a a technology that over time, they're going to make this smaller and smaller, and eventually you'll be able to control everything right from the phone. So the only thing you may need is like a little transformer to power the pads. this device probably sells for about $7,000 to $12,000. So if anyone is interested, don't contact the company. And buy it, just hit me up. I'll, I'll be able to get you a pretty decent deal. Um, there's uh, another uh, company that makes another technology very similar to this. And um, I, uh, I researched the patents that these companies have. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to find the link. The link was not live as I checked it earlier today. But uh, I'll get it to John, I'll post it, but essentially they have these um, $20,000 laser systems made in Russia, and I found a co, uh, like, like the other half of the company making the same technology from Israel, and you could buy them for a couple hundred bucks. So literally, same thing, like 10 times, maybe 20 times cheaper. I found uh, devices from Israel that do um, pulse electromagnetic field therapy. I found devices similar to this that do light therapy, and there were some other things. So the significance of that, literally it puts like all this technology from like the $20,000 price point, <clears> brings <throat> it down about 200 bucks. So now it's fairly affordable. And uh, what, what tends to happen with um, at least a lot of the clinicians, they'll have one that they keep in their facility with their patients and one they keep in their home because that way they always have access to it for themselves. And as you get to use it more and more often, you'll come up with some new things. Do you have a question? What does it do? So the, um, thank you for asking that. So, um, <laughs> the, uh, so the light itself, there's four different wavelengths. One of the wavelengths can stimulate the production of stem cells. So for that, you would uh, anyone know where you would put a pad if you want to stimulate stem cells in the body? Uh, you'd put it on the front of your tibia. So, the reason is a very short distance to get to the bone marrow to stimulate the production of the stem cells there. Um, another wavelength gets rid of inflammatory cytokines. So, those are like the chemicals that have been very difficult for scientists and doctors to measure, but they contribute to inflammation all over the body. They're kind of like the invisible connecting dots for a lot of different diseases. Um, you know, there's a lot of similarities between certain diseases between overtraining, between depression, and some of these connecting links are um, cytokines. Uh, One of the most uh, well-known, well-written about is interleukin-1-beta. The significance of that is when there are sleep issues, it could be insomnia or apnea, there's an increase in interleukin-1-beta. Interleukin-1-beta is so powerful that even when a man is injecting testosterone with high levels of interleukin-1-beta, he could still have erectile dysfunction. So, so we talk about some of these cytokines that are pretty significant in the body. Um, they can cause it's it's the sort of a, the chemical basis for a lot of different diseases, diabetes, colitis, Crohn's, um, arthritis. So there's some connecting links. So this tool represents one way to reduce levels of these inflammatory markers in the body. Now, research from Russia was pretty slick. That um, that uh, was very impressive. They took a light source about the diameter of a quarter, and they had subjects lay face down, and they put the light in their lower back, and they draw their blood from their fingertips and, like, their toes, and the reason for that is they wanted to show the lights in the center of the body, and they're measuring, like, the furthest points from where that light source was, and they were showing changes in inflammation in the fingertips. Yeah, so why do you think it's systemic? Like, what is it, what's it going through? It's yeah, blood, right? So that works really well, except what areas would it not get to work so well in? Cartilage. Cartilage, right, where there's not really like a direct blood flow. So above the brain stem, inside the joint. So for those areas, scientists uh, figured out other protocols. So there's um, there's like some general strategies where you would put this like behind someone's head, and the idea is to get rid of inflammation in the nervous system. Then you would put this maybe on your tibia to help with stem cells, and then you might put this on your lower back to kind of get like around the uh, circulation on the body. If I had someone who had a liver or kidney issues, I would put these pads around the areas where I think, or maybe uh, GI issues, I put these pads around those areas that I think there may be like tissue damage or trauma. Um, I'm sorry.
3: Man.
1: Oh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> he has them in his bedroom with a secret drawer. He just yeah. pulls it out. <laughs> yeah, so this is, uh, well, the funny thing was, uh, so I'm talking to the engineer that's like built design this and he's like, yeah, it's going to be out in like you know, three weeks, four weeks to before it's fine. Like the, pro- the prototypes are done. Now mass production will have so one of my buddies who's an athletic trainer from NHL, he shows up in my office and he has one of these. I'm like, what? So I was like, how did you get this before me? So it turns out he lives in the same town as the engineer that I was talking to. So literally they like meet for coffee and he gets one like the day it comes out. So um, you know, you network and you meet people, and that's mm-hmm. how you find out about the technologies. Yes? How long would someone really
0: have to wear that procession, and then over what time are you looking at making
1: a significant change? Yeah, so uh, you would, um, the protocols vary, um, so that's what's cool about the app. You would like someone, like back pain. You just click on it, and it runs 15 to 30 minutes as an average, so not a super long time. Um, and uh, what we try to do is make that part of something else someone's already doing. So if they're stretching... You know, if they're doing some other lower-level type of movement pattern, we'd incorporate that. Uh, as far as how many, like, treatment sessions and everything, um, I'm uh, even though I am a scientist, I'm very critical of a lot of study designs. Most study designs are designed with a bias of trying to prove something works for the purpose of a future sale. It's not designed... God bless you. It's, uh, they're not designed from the perspective of... What's the optimal dosing parameters, and how do you determine the optimal dose response for individuals? So, like some examples, so so to answer your question specifically before I go off on a little bit of a tangent, um, I would say that um, I would use this every day, and uh, that's quite a bit more than what the research indicates on, on human beings, but the research on cells definitely shows better results with greater dosing. And then um, there are there's some, some variances though. Uh, people with darker skin, so greater pigmentation or so, um, they would initially start off with less treatment time. So there's reports of darker skin athletes actually getting burns from the same wavelengths that do not affect, say, fairer skin athletes. So there's just something that you gotta be aware of with that. The veterinary world is crystal clear about, they know about dosing light with animals uh, based on like their skin color, the animal. Um, but in the human world, there's not, not, not a lot of information on that. So but we would go like I think 15 minutes a day, every day for most people would be safe. Like you don't have to worry about any type of burn. And um, essentially uh, what it'll do is get rid of inflammation. They'll get rid of pain, but it will not change the joint. Let's say if it was an arthritis issue in a joint it will not change the tissue structure that quickly. That'll probably take more, close to about three months, maybe even six months, depending on the severity of the damage. And um, the analogy I wanna maybe you guys think about, you're like if you had some swelling in a joint, you could take a Celebrex or some other powerful anti-inflammatory toradol, and very quickly, hey, no pain. But the cartilage, the bone, it didn't change, right? It's still as jacked up as it was before you took the pill. And so with some of these therapies, they can get rid of these substances causing swelling, so you get rid of the pain very quickly, but it does not mean the tissue structure changed you know, as quickly. Can I you answer more, your questions? Okay. okay. To
2: give a more specific example, okay. if you like a
1: common sports injury, like an ACL, MCL, mm-hmm. how would you use that? Protocol? So what I would do is I'd just put it around a knee. Well, I guess so, there's two pads. You can buy up to four with it. So the pads are pretty pricey. So let's say if you had, um, if some guys only get one, if you get one, you know, you could do like one tibia, one one session, another tibia, as far as the, the stem cell stimulation, one pad on the back of the neck is fine. Um, if it was like one knee, then you would at some point wrap it around the knee. And the, and the rationale is you're trying to get systemic and localized effects. And then you would, you know, so the, but you, with one pad you'd be like building up your time. So it's like maybe 45 minutes because you'd have like brainstem circulation and then the knee joint. And then you would do that to say every day um, until they get to the And you know, once people become pain-free, things change in how they perceive the value of it, you know. So ideally, it would go to full length until you have some confirmation at this full tissue repair. But I can tell you, practically, no one sticks it out that long, usually. Uh,
0: a couple questions. One, uh, in addition to the burns, are there any other adverse effects?
1: None that I'm aware of. And
0: then, uh, is
2: this... Are the different light frequencies found in nature? It's just like, hey, you might see this light more north, you might see this light more
1: south. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so uh, white light has a full spectrum of uh, wavelengths. So, you know, anything coming from the sun, you know, anything coming that that you would encounter nature has all these wavelengths. Uh, The difference, though, is that uh, the wavelengths have a frequency and um, there's a different intensity. So kind of like, you know, five pounds versus 50 pounds. So the, so like, could you encounter nature? Yeah, there's different stones that emit certain specific wavelengths, but practically it would be difficult to, um, you know, go search and find all the stones and find all the materials concentrated enough. It was kind of like maybe getting, I could get vitamin E out of food, but it's a lot easier to get enough vitamin E from one little pill. So this would be just like a very convenient way of packaging and delivering the correct dose, you know. So I think it could be a current nature, but it would be a little bit more challenging.
3: Is that how they came to that conclusion, though? Is like from...
1: No, they were different. Uh, so in, um, so the area of research that this covers would be called photobiology medicine or um, low-level laser therapy or light therapy. Like there's different <clears throat> phrases that are used and um, essentially, they've uh, evaluated the effects of different wavelengths that essentially are from different spectrums of the rainbow, like red, orange, yellow. And, and it seems like stuff around the red-infrared range appears to be really therapeutic. Um, stuff around the blue and ultraviolet uh, range turns to be very antimicrobial. So um, I didn't bring this other device I have, but it's a handheld device, and it has both like a an antimicrobial and a therapeutic uh, emitters with it. So it kind of flashes like red to blue back and forth. And uh, these things are shown very effective, like, like if you have like some type of surface infection, they can kill these things off very quickly. Yes? Is there like a feedback on the machine, uh, like cold lasers
3: have microcurrent that go with it so you can tell how intense hmm. it is with your treatment? Sure. There's
1: something on there that lets you know how is going? No. Do you, do you have that for a yeah. half? Yeah, so some of the uh, other laser systems we use do have that, where they'll measure impedance and give you a signal. Um, This particular device doesn't. Uh, I think um, a lot of the impedance sensors are typically metal, and since this is a silicon material, I just don't know if they've thought about that yet. Um, Ideally, it would be really cool if there was some type of built in biofeedback for the tissue. So it's kind of like You say, put it on, and then beep, it's done. (laughs) So you don't have to think at all, right? Um, But at this stage, these guys are not at that point yet. This is only their second version of the model, and their first attempt was really to uh, compact it, make it portable, because that gives them a strategic advantage in the marketplace. There isn't anything else you could buy right now that's as powerful as this that you could roll up and put anywhere in your body and just... Pack up and take, you know, along with 50 pounds of supplements, you know, to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, my other question was with some modalities, you have to have a certain medical license in you to know, mm. give it out. Sure.
0: Does um, so this carry you
2: anything know, like that?
1: No, so you are going to see, uh, so the reason why there's all these products coming out, let's say in a biophysical world, is because they don't necessarily require a medical license of any kind because the companies are not making any medical device claims. Okay. So where the licensing comes in, is if the company claims it can cure or treat a disease, then the FDA requires that it's under medical supervision. But the workaround, I mean, most guys have. You just find a doctor, you have them order it, and they give it to you. You know, it's not like a, there's not a policed environment where someone's looking over your shoulder. Um, it's just kind of the way things are done. Yes, in the back.
3: Do you need a test
1: subject for any of those things <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, so um, we could uh, hook some guys
2: up. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. This year, Power Athlete is challenging you to be more than the cliché resolutionist, or resi as Luke calls them. Instead, make the conscious decision day in and day out to live the domino effect every choice you make leads you closer to one of two things your goal or regret until next time bye